0: We have a great guest on the show today, but before I tell you about him, let me tell you about Podia. Podia is like an amazing Swiss Army knife for selling anything online. It's an all-in-one digital storefront where you can sell courses, memberships, and digital downloads all in one place. The cool thing about Podia is that they eliminate all of the technical headaches. You don't have to install anything. You can host your sales pages there, your files, your checkout process. You can even do your email marketing and newsletters right from Podia. Fizzle Show listeners get 15% off of Podia for life by signing up for a free trial over at podia.com slash fizzle. That's P-O-D-I-A dot slash fizzle. Fizzle. Thanks to Podia for sponsoring the Fizzle Show and for supporting independent entrepreneurs like you and me. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Fizzle Show. I'm your host, Corbett Barr, and this is our podcast about earning a living independently doing something you love. Today, we're joined by Nir Ayal. Nir is the author of Hooked How to Build Habit Forming Products. And indistractable, how to control your attention and choose your life. Near also writes at his blog, nearandfar.com, that's N I R and far.com, about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business, something he calls behavioral design. His writing also appears in Harvard Business Review, The Atlantic, TechCrunch, and Psychology Today. Near, thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, this is great. Uh, I, I want to start out because you've written two books. Um, they were five or six years apart, I think, but they seem to be really related. Am I right in describing your tu- your two books as almost two sides of the same coin? The first book is about creating products that hook your customers. And the second one is about reclaiming your attention as an individual so that you can stay focused. These are sort of competing interests. Am I right?
1: Well, there's about, you know, the first book is about creating good habits and the second book is about breaking bad habits. So it it uses a lot of the same psychology, of course, and it's because I understand the Achilles heel of how these products are designed that I can give people uh, insights into how to make sure we put these technologies in their place.
0: And you come from this, um, a, from a place of having built businesses yourself. Um, tell us about the startups that, that you built and were you always interested in psychology or, or did you come at this because you had some goal in mind of, of trying to get more users or, or keeping them to stick around?
1: No, you know, originally my first business uh, was a solar energy business and that that is what kind of put me on the map and uh, we sold that company to a private equity firm and uh, that then I went to business school at Stanford. And it was only when I was at Stanford that I got interested in behavioral design when my second company, which was in the advertising and gaming space, uh, many of our clients included the social media companies and the gaming companies. And that's where I really learned uh, from this front row seat I had uh, as these companies were coming up. I I learned these tactics for how to persuade users to keep using your product in a way that you can form a good habit with those people. And So the idea here behind Hooked, uh, this this came out of a course that I taught at Stanford. Uh, the idea here is that you can steal these tactics from the world's stickiest products, like you know the iPhone and Facebook and Instagram and Slack and Snapchat. You can learn how they are so good at keeping customers hooked, so that you can hook your own customers to healthy products and services. I think the the vast majority of businesses out there they don't struggle with anybody overusing their product, at least not in the way that you know people might overuse Twitter or Slack or whatever. No, no, no most people out there building a product or service are just desperate for. Anyone to use the product, and so that's really who I wanted to help out. Were the the people out there who are building the kind of product or service that would really benefit people if they just use the damn thing. And so that's really what I wanted to uh, address was the, the 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 difficulty that so many companies and services out there have in uh, building the kind of products that people use because they want to, not because they have to. I mean, think about how amazing that would be for your business if you didn't have to spend all that money on advertising or send all those spammy messages to get people to come back? What if people came back to the product or service because they wanted to out of habit? Uh, That is exactly what these masters of habit design do uh, when you think about these big tech companies. And so I wanted to give the blueprint for how anyone could do that.
0: I love it. Uh, and, And teaching online courses is the perfect example, I think, for a lot of people as entrepreneurs, because we know that if our users, our students, just invested the time and completed the course that we built and spent so much time investing in uh, that they would get some incredible results from it. And yet in, in the online course space, we see that completion rates are so bad. Um, they horrible. They're They're horrible. I think something less than 10% of people who start an average online course Uh, Unless it's in the context maybe of of a degree or something. But if you're just doing it on your own for self-learning or or for your career, less than 10% of people end up completing those. So this is the perfect example. Wouldn't it be great if we created an online course and people were dying to get through the whole thing?
1: Right. and so, so this I, is exactly how the book has been used. In fact, one of my investments was in a company called Kahoot, and Kahoot used the Hooked model to get kids hooked onto learning, and so they used the Hook model for exactly this purpose. And that that would be a great example of how we can use healthy habits to improve people's lives.
0: Nice. All right. Well, I, I'd love to get to, into some examples um, first. I guess. For thinking about people who you know are, are aware of social media and, and how addictive it is, and and you know fa- you mentioned Facebook and uh, Instagram especially, I think there's this feeling that those companies may be using some disingenuous tactics, or that they may know some dark arts of ways to manipulate us into using those things. Do those companies do things that um, would make the average entrepreneur squeamish to implement or um, are they really just masters of psychology and uh, and it ends up being more us that becomes hooked on them and, and not so much them architecting it in a way?
1: Well, the, these products are not um, – they're not – drugs right we're not injecting instagram we're not freebasing facebook here uh we need to put this stuff in perspective that lots of things are potentially addictive and don't addict everyone i mean clearly you know even if you think about things that are much more addictive than technology think about alcohol right many people uh, drink alcohol we have a glass of wine dinner but we're not all alcoholics. And yet somehow it's become, uh, you know, the, 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 the popular narrative is that these things are addictive to everyone, and that is clearly not the case. I mean, we're talking about single-digit percentages of people who actually become addicted. The vast majority of people out there are not addicted uh, to alcohol, even if they have a glass of wine. The, the vast majority of people who have sex are not sex addicts. The vast majority of people who, who uh, gamble, you know, go to a poker night once in a while are not problem gamblers. Uh, addiction is a pathology. Uh, but we love calling them addictions. (laughs) Right? Because when we call something an addiction, now we can slough off responsibility. Because when we call something an addiction, there's a pusher, there's a dealer, there's someone who's doing it to us. But if we call it what it really is, a distraction, oh, no, now I got to do something about it. That's no fun. And so I think it, it behooves us to not give into this silly narrative that is not backed by any science. And is not true. Uh, and it's not helpful to us to, to give over responsibility by thinking, oh, well, there's nothing I can do. These tech companies, they're addicting me, they're addicting my kids, what am I gonna do? As instead, because what this leads to is, is learned helplessness, and it, it doesn't help anybody. What we need to do is to say, look, these technologies are great if we use them correctly, if we use them in such a way that we that they serve us as opposed to us serving them. And and so, you know, these te- and it's it's certainly not about the techniques. Maybe you could argue that some product Are you know maybe more frivolous than others, if you want to make that argument. But 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 certainly um, there are ways that we can use these technologies to, to benefit us. I mean, clearly, you know, we're not getting rid of email. We're not getting rid of the iPhone. We're not getting rid of social media. They're they're not going anywhere. So why would we shake our fists and wait for these companies to change? They're not going to change, and frankly, we don't want them to change. Are we gonna? Hey, Netflix, can you make? Boring shows, please, because I find your shows are really good and I want to watch them. Right? It, what, what's the psychological trick they're using? What's what's the unsavory practices making good television? I right. don't think so. Or, you know, iPhone. You know, your Apple. Uh, your iPhones are really user friendly. I want to use it all the time. Can you please make it harder to use so I don't use it all the time? So, so complaining about these technologies being user-friendly and fun to use, that's these companies' jobs, for God's sakes. Do we, is there an alternative? This isn't a problem. This is progress. Now, what, what we need to do is to face this fact that, that the world is getting better. Technology is improving. It is improving our lives. But sometimes we overuse these things. And guess what? This is not a new problem. Plato talked about this problem 2,500 years before the iPhone was invented. He called it akrasia, the tendency that we all have to do things against our better interests. And you know, let's be honest with ourselves. If Zuckerberg tomorrow said, you know what? I'm sick of this. I'm, I'm turning this all off. Screw everyone. Facebook is going dark. No more Instagram. No more WhatsApp. I'm done. Do we really think people are, would, would suddenly start reading Shakespeare and Chaucer in their spare time? of course not we would be just as distracted as we were with with facebook we would just find other things as we always have people have always been getting distracted by one thing or another what we keep doing with every successive generation whether it's you know, in the 1950s, they said the comic books were melting your brain, and the radio, and the novel, and rap music, and rock and roll music, and video games. Every generation has their freak out moral panic without addressing the root cause of the problem. And if we don't address the root cause of the problem, and we keep complaining about the symptoms, which is what I think we currently see in this manifestation of our technologies, we're, we're blaming the symptom as opposed to understanding the cause of the disease.
0: And is understanding the cause of the disease something that companies like Facebook and Instagram are better at? Are those products actually more not addictive. I don't know what, what word you would like to insert engaging, instead, engaging, engaging fun. <laughs> engaging, fun, useful. Uh, are those products really that much more engaging, fun and useful than the countless other photo sharing apps or social media apps that have been created? What is the, the difference maker for those that, uh, break out and, and become part of the social fabric versus the countless others that, that end up just flopping or, or going away?
1: Well, there's, there's three pillars to every successful product, and uh, this came out of Reid Hoffman from LinkedIn. Uh, this is called the GEM framework, that every successful product needs growth, engagement, and monetization, G-E-M, GEM, growth, engagement, monetization. So there's never a magic bullet it's always a combination of these three things that, you know, a company will be really good at growth. And I think if you look at Facebook, they, you know, that there was a lot of ways that their growth team was just stellar in terms of growing the company. Some things they did, frankly, on the growth team were, were not so savory, you know, it used to be back in the day, you could import your entire address list. And people did that all the time. Today, I think people are much more savvy about not doing that sort of thing. Uh, but at the time, you could do it. Uh, and then you've got engagement, you've got how do you bring people back? That's kind of where I specialize in is, is these uh, the, how we can build a product that people want to keep using, and then you've got monetization, right? How do you uh, how do you uh, extract revenue uh, from from your customers and users in a way that can can support the company and help the company grow? So these things are interact they they interlace, but each is necessary but not sufficient. So it's about it's about all three.
0: And, uh, for all of these products, you know, eventually they have to become for, for them to, to, to really dominate, uh, and, and to gain 2 billion users like Facebook has, uh, they really have to become a habit. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about, uh, how a product becomes a habit and, um, what, uh, as a product maker we need to do to, to try to make our products more of a habit for our users?
1: Sure. So the hooked model, which is what I described in my first book, Hooked, is about these four basic steps of a trigger, an action, a reward, and finally an investment. And it's through successive cycles through these hooks that customer preferences are shaped, that our tastes are formed, and that our habits take hold. So every hook starts with a trigger. Typically, it's an external trigger. So it's some kind of ping, ding, ring, or thing that prompts you to action. The action is the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. So it's opening the app, it's scrolling a feed, it's pushing a play button. It's any simple behavior that gets you to the reward. The reward is something that scratches the user's itch and yet leaves them wanting more. So it's typically a variable reward, some kind of uncertainty, some kind of, 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 of variability that keeps us checking in. So uh, variable rewards are seen in all sorts of products. Uh, It's what makes the news interesting. It's what makes a good book, is the variability of what's going to happen next. It's why we watch spectator sports. It's what makes romance romantic. It's uncertainty, variability, is kind of the engine of this hooked model. And then finally, the fourth step, and this is unique to products as opposed to just forming a good habit in day-to-day life, is some kind of investment. And this is really special. This is where interactive technology really changes the game. Because you know, if you had asked Henry Ford uh, when he was building his cars, he's quoted as saying that you can have any color of Model T as long as, as it's black. And he said that because retooling his factory was really difficult, right? To give you a, a, an orange car and you a yellow car and you a purple car, that would have been really hard. But today, we actually make these technology platforms in real time based on our investment of data content, followers, anything that you put into the service to make it better and better with use accrues what's called stored value. So everything in the physical world depreciates with wear and tear, right? Your furniture, your clothing, everything you buy that's made out of atoms as opposed to bits loses value with time, right? The more you use it, the less valuable it becomes, it depreciates. But habit-forming products that follow the hook model They do the opposite. They appreciate in value. They get better and better the more you use them because of your investment in the product in the form of data, content, followers, reputation, skill, all of these things that you put into the product to make it better and better with use. So you are co-creating an experience of one with these products. Now you can doesn't you don't have to be Facebook or the iPhone to uh, to do these kind of things. You can ask for user investment in any way that makes the product improve the more it is used. And most businesses totally don't see this opportunity. And I think it's probably the biggest. Mm untapped opportunity out there is to ask yourself, how could the product get better with use? That is a huge portion of the hook model. So that through successive cycles through the hook model, eventually you don't need any of those external triggers. You don't need the the pings and dings. Eventually, you begin to form an association with what's called an internal trigger. An internal trigger is when you can couple a product's use to some kind of uncomfortable emotional state. So when we feel lonely. We check Facebook or Tinder. When we feel uncertain, we Google. When we're bored, we check the news, uh, sports scores, Reddit, Pinterest. We use products and services to make us feel something else. And so if you can attach your product's use to some kind of frequently felt discomfort, that is where you begin to uh, form this habit. Because now the, the consumer is using the product uh, not when you ping or ding them, but when their internal trigger sparks them to find relief with the use of your product.
0: So you mentioned earlier um, a an investment that you made in an app for uh, kids to learn and uh, that they followed this model and, and were really successful. I, could we walk through those four pillars and and sort of talk about how in a use case like that, that was implemented and, and the sort of results that they got, because I think there's a lot of corollary between that and the kinds of businesses that a lot of people listening to this show are trying to build.
1: Sure. So you want to walk through the, the hooked model for, for Kahoot?
0: Yeah, that would be amazing.
1: Sure. So the external trigger is, so that the way this, the, that Kahoot works is it's a quiz uh, platform where kids make their own quizzes to test each other out in the classroom. So the external trigger is the the teacher. The teacher facilitates this. So the teacher is bringing the, the use of this product into the classroom. The action is to play this quiz. The variable reward is the variability of the questions of this quiz show type product in the classroom that you're answering the questions. And the investment is making the quiz for other kids to take. So the assignment many times by the teacher will be for a particular child to make the quiz that the class will play the next day. So if you compare that model to how most online education works, or or frankly, even offline education, offline and online education, most of it is what we call the sta- sage on a stage model, right? It's somebody who has been anointed as smart, and they barf all this information at you, and you're supposed to retain it and not be bored doing it, which is very, very hard, especially online when you think about how many potential distractions we have as we're trying to watch a video, trying to keep our eyelids peeled open as we're you know, absolutely bored by somebody yapping on in a video. It's very hard, right? Most online content is really boring, Whereas opposed to the Kahoot model where you have this interactive model where there's much more variability, much more action going on in terms of this quiz show-like mechanic. It's actually. Much much closer to the Socratic method, believe it or not, than it is just somebody lecturing on and, and, and boring everyone to tears.
0: And, and so if, if you don't have a captive audience, uh, if you don't have a classroom full of people physically, you have to come up with something that can trigger them. What does that end up being typically for, for digital products?
1: Yeah, so it can be all sorts of things. If you think about uh, Duolingo, for example, the language learning app, I've worked with them in the past. Um, So the external trigger, of course, can be a ping or a ding, right? It's some kind of notification. But eventually, what they want the consumer to do is to have a certain time in the day. It becomes a routine in their day, like brushing your teeth or making that cup of coffee. It becomes something that you do every day around the same time. And what they eventually find is when they have formed a habit with their user, it's based on that certain time of day. Okay, so Every day that I'm in the bus, as opposed to listening to music or a podcast or you know, putzing around on Facebook, instead, I'm going to teach myself a language on Duolingo.
0: Got it. So, uh, it starts as some sort of digital alert, uh, could be an email. Notifications, something like that, but the goal is to move your users towards not needing that all the time In fact, what happens if an app just always relies on the external trigger? Does it never get over that hump
1: right it it becomes you 're at risk of uh, of always relying on that message and that's that can be a precarious position because. You know, hopefully, you own that that communication channel. So, if you have the privilege of earning the right to send someone a notification on their phone, that's great. You know, most companies have to buy that from somewhere else, right? We have to pay Google to list us. We have to pay for Facebook ads. We have to pay for advertisement uh, in a magazine or a newspaper or on television. You're renting that attention as opposed to owning it. And so, the problem there, of course, it's very expensive, and you're constantly competing on price and features. Right. So think about Geico, for example. Car insurance would never be a habit. It just doesn't, it's not. Purchased enough, it's not used frequently enough to ever become a habit. So, what does Geico have to do? They send, they have these commercials, and we've all seen them a bajillion times that say, you know, Geico will send you 15% on car insurance. Well, the next company comes around and says, oh, yeah, well, we'll save you 20% on car insurance. And they undercut them. And so, you're constantly battling it out based on price and features and price and features, as opposed to when a company has a habit that is a huge competitive advantage because a habit is defined as a behavior done with little or no conscious thought so when you consider google for example you know they own 85 90% of the search engine market why is it because they have the best search engine no i think that's bs that if you look at head to head comparisons when third parties have studied what people think about google versus bing search results it's actually a 50 50 preference split People can't tell the difference if they don't, if they strip out the branding and they don't know whose search results are who, they turn out they, they like both search results equally. And yet Google has 85-90% of the search engine market. Why? Because of habit. When you Google something, you don't ask yourself, hmm, I wonder if there's a better search engine out there. No, you just do it with little or no conscious thought. And so that's really the power of habit. It is a competitive moat. A barrier to entry for your competition when somebody has a habit with your product. Now, there are all sorts of competitive moats. We've got intellectual property, we've got um, uh, economies of scale. There's many different types of, of, of barriers to entry, but habit is one of those that we can form through quality product design, because you know growth, as I talked about earlier in that gem framework, you can always buy growth. Right? You can always raise a bunch of money from a venture capitalist and invest in a bunch of ads to, to drive growth. But you cannot buy engagement. Engagement has to be designed into your product. It's not something you can just bolt on afterwards. And so it's very important to consider that. If your product requires a habit, by the way, not every business needs to be habit-forming. Plenty of companies are not habit-forming. It's just that every company that needs a habit needs a hook.
0: Yeah, and in in our case, um most of our listeners are, are not directly paying for access to users. They're investing their own time to create content, whether it be a blog or a podcast or or YouTube videos, to attract users. So they are investing something. Um they're investing their time. And I I think what I'm hearing is if you're going to be investing that time and your product doesn't have engagement, then you're, you're wasting that time. You're wasting that money that you might be spending on Facebook ads. The companies that have engagement get such a higher return on that investment up front that they're the ones that are able to uh, last because they can afford to. They have a return on that investment.
1: Right, right. So they, they, you know, if you think about how much money Coca-Cola or um, uh, Exxon or uh, Geico spent on advertising, it's huge, right? They have to because they are competing on a commodity product. Gasoline and sugar, water and insurance are kind of commodity products. And so they have to spend a ton of money to differentiate. But if you think about how much money does Google or Facebook or Slack or Instagram or or any of these companies uh, spend on advertising, they spend almost nothing, right? As a proportion of their market cap, they spend almost nothing. Why is that? Well, because it's not the ads that bring people back to those products, as in the case of these commodity products like Coca Cola or gasoline or whatever. It's the product experience itself that brings people back, and that is a really big deal. That is revolutionary. The good news is that these same tactics have been democratized. that in fact, all of us can use these very same techniques because the technology is, is so readily available these days that we can all do similar things if your product is used with sufficient frequency to form a habit in the first place. That's, that's the one criteria. When I look at companies uh, that, that I work with in my consulting practice or that I invest in as an angel investor, I always look for this frequency component that it's almost impossible to change a consumer habit. There are some exceptions, but it's almost impossible to change a consumer habit if the behavior doesn't occur within a week's time or less. So that, that is one of the criteria that, that I look for is a frequently used product. Larry yeah. Page, uh, one of the founders of Google, called it the toothbrush test, that he only wants to build products that are used with the frequency of a toothbrush. Once or twice a day, at least. Right.
0: Hey, before we keep going, here's a quick message from Gusto. Small business owners wear a lot of hats, and while some hats are great, others, like the filing taxes and running payroll hat, they're not so great. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, and managing a team actually easy for small businesses. Gusto automatically pays and files your federal, state, and local taxes so you don't have to worry about it. Plus, they make it easy to add on health benefits and even 401ks for your team. Oh, and you can get direct access to certified HR experts too. Sounds like a pretty good way to kick off 2020 for your business, right? But here's the thing. Deadlines for the new year, they creep up earlier than you think, and you're going to want to get started now. So don't wait. Let Gusto make it easier on you. As a bonus, listeners get three months free when they run their first payroll. This is one hat you're going to be glad you gave up. So try a demo and see for yourself over at gusto.com slash fizzle. That's gusto.com slash fizzle. Um, great. Well, I think we should switch gears and talk a little bit about how these habits affect us as people that are trying to stay focused and create something in the world. If uh, Facebook and your news app and, and all of these other things that that we all tune into as distractions multiple times a day have gotten our attention and have us hooked in a way um, because they're so engaging, because they understand how to uh, have some sort of external trigger and engage us and and make this become a habit in a way. And we, you know, it sounds like uh, your philosophy is that we willingly give into these um, because they're a, a welcome distraction as part of the day. But as entrepreneurs, we have to focus. We have to spend a lot of concerted effort on one particular task uh, in order to make progress towards building businesses that actually matter. And uh, that technology can get in the way sometimes, or those applications can get in the way if we allow them to. Absolutely, is, yeah. Is, is technology then – you're saying that it, it becomes basically a, a scapegoat for our lack of self-control?
1: Well, I, I think that, that it's um let me put it this way. I think people fall into a few different categories, and I can hear some some echoes of these two categories in your question. So let me kind of explain these two categories. So one group of people, when it comes to the problem of distraction, they put themselves in the category of blamers, right? They say, oh, it's my iPhone, it's email, it's Facebook. These things are doing it to me. They blame things outside themselves. The other category of people are people who shame themselves. So we've got the blamers and we've got the shamers. They say, oh, there's something wrong with me. I have low self-control. I'm lazy. Maybe I'm not cut out for this job. Maybe there's something wrong with me. They shame themselves. And of course, that tactic doesn't work because when we feel shame, we feel even worse and we look for distractions to take our mind off of how bad we feel. So that strategy doesn't work. And then you've got the third category of people who are the claimers. So we don't want to be blamers. We don't want to be shamers. We want to be claimers. Claimers claim responsibility. They say, look, it's not my fault, right? You didn't invent Facebook, you didn't invent the iPhone, you didn't invent email, you didn't invent these things. It's not your fault, but it is your responsibility because we cannot control our feelings. All we can control is how we react to our feelings. So a claimer claims responsibility and says, how do I deal with these uncomfortable emotional states that lead me towards distraction, that I am trying to escape the discomfort of, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, um, stress, anxiety, whatever it might be, these internal triggers that these companies depend upon to get us hooked. How can I deal with that discomfort in a healthier fashion so that I am doing more things that are helpful to me as opposed to those that are hurtful to me?
0: We see all the time, it's it's really fashionable to um, publish lists of tips on how to control distractions. and And usually they're technical tips like, you know, how to change your notification settings, or I've seen people go so far as to lock themselves out of their iPhone if they've used it for a certain amount of time. Um, but do those really stick? Uh, you know, is, is that enough? Or, or you're saying we have to get a lot deeper into our own psychology,
1: really? Right, right. Because we have to understand the root cause of this problem. So let me let me kind of just go directly at this question of why do we get distracted? Right? As uh, Plato was talking about this 2,500 years ago, well before the iPhone. What is it that that gets us distracted when we know what to do? why don't we just do it? I mean, we have all the information. Who doesn't know basically how to lose weight, right? Who doesn't know that eating chocolate cake is not as healthy as a healthful salad? Who doesn't know that if you want to have better relationships with people you love, you have to be fully present? Who doesn't know that if you want to do better at your job, you have to actually do the work, especially the stuff that you don't feel like doing that other people don't feel like doing either. That We all know this. And if you don't know, everybody's got access to Google. You can quickly figure out how to get stuff done. The question is, why don't we do the things we know we need to do? So to answer that question, we have to take a step back and we have to answer a really first principles question, which is why do we do anything? What's the root root of human motivation? Why do we do everything we do? And most people will tell you that it's about carrots and sticks, right? It's about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. This is called Freud's pleasure principle. And I would argue that is not true, that we don't do things because of the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, but in fact, it's pain all the way down. That everything we do is about the need to escape discomfort. Physiologically, we know this to be true. This is called the homeostatic response. If we feel, uh, if we go outside and it's cold, the brain says, ooh, this doesn't feel good. Put on a jacket. If we go back inside and now we're too hot, the brain says, oh, now I'm too hot. That doesn't feel good. Take off your coat. If we're hungry, we feel hunger pangs, and so we eat. And when we're stuffed, we eat too much, Right? The brain says that doesn't feel good. Stop eating. So, those are physiological sensations. And of course, we know the same to be true to our psychological sensations. So, when we're bored, we check, uh, we, we check the news, we check stock prices. If we're lonely, we check Facebook. If we're uncertain, we check Google. We use these products and services to satisfy these uncomfortable sensations. So, that means fundamentally, if all behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort, that means that time management is pain management. And if we don't understand that fact, that this is the root cause, this is why we do everything, and therefore it is why we get distracted, distraction is an action like any other, then if we don't face that fact and have a toolkit for dealing with these uncomfortable sensations, we will always get distracted by one thing or another.
0: So time management is pain management. What do you, what do you mean by that? And, and how does that affect me looking at my to-do list today and then deciding that, ah, oh, I can do that tomorrow or I can do that later.
1: Yeah. So why do you feel that discomfort, right? What, what is it that is driving you away from doing what you plan to do? I would argue that you can use any of the life hacks and the guru's techniques and all the books you've read on personal productivity, but if you don't feel like it, and you have habituated to turning to a distraction to anything that takes your mind off of that discomfort, that is what you will turn to with little or no conscious thought. And so that's where we have to start. We have to arm ourselves with a toolkit for what to do when we feel these uncomfortable sensations as opposed to, whatever, let me just watch some Netflix or "Eh, I'll deal with it tomorrow. Let me go do something else right now. We have to understand what is that discomfort that is leading us towards distraction. And, and let me just explain this dichotomy. You know, we have to understand what is distraction, really. Uh, and the best way to understand what distraction is, is to understand what distraction is not. So the opposite of distraction, think about this for a minute. What's the opposite of distraction? Most people would say it's focus. It's not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. Both words come from the same Latin root trahere which means to pull and they both end in the same six letters a c t i o n that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do things that you do with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do with intent. So this is really important for two reasons. Number one, anything can be a distraction. So if you sit down at your desk, as I used to do many, many times, sit down at my desk and I'd say, okay, now I'm going to work on that big project. Now I'm going to stop procrastinating. I'm finally going to do the thing I plan to do right after I check email, <laughs> right? How many times has that happened? And we feel like, oh, email, that's a productive thing. That's kind of something I need to do anyway. No, BS. If that's not what you plan to do with your time, it is a distraction. It's what we call pseudo work. Because if it's not what you plan to do with your time, it is just as much of a distraction as playing video games. So anything can be a distraction. And conversely, anything can be traction. So I don't like this moral hierarchy that, oh, what I do with my time is OK. But with you, what you do with your time, no, that's, that's, that's frivolous. That's a waste of time. You playing video games, that's a waste of time. But me watching football on TV, that's OK. Why? There's no difference. Anything you plan to do with your time, as long as you're doing it with intent, is perfectly fine. Don't feel guilty about it. Enjoy it. But enjoy it on your schedule, not on somebody else's schedule. So when it comes to mastering these internal triggers, this is the first step to becoming uh, indistractable. We master these internal triggers in order to help us use these internal triggers, use this discomfort of stress, anxiety, uncertainty, fatigue, whatever it is that we're feeling to lead us towards acts of traction rather than letting it get us distracted.
0: So um, can you give us an example of that? If if we're feeling, so the the first step it sounds like is self-awareness because when we're acting on habit, we're sort of on autopilot, and, and we may not even be conscious that we're doing these things. We just happen to find ourselves in email or happen to quickly find ourselves reading the news or something because of this habit that's formed. So self-awareness is the first step, it sounds like, to recognize that we're feeling this twinge of something mm-hmm. that is the common trigger that leads us to checking the news unconsciously. Right. So self self awareness is the first step. It, when we start to feel that how how then do you replace that and and what do you replace that with?
1: Right. So there's a whole section on the book devoted to this. But let me give you some really concrete tips, some things that I could, that, that I think you can use starting today. What we know is that when we can master those internal triggers, when we can first identify them, as you said, and simply writing it down, psychologists tell us that literally just writing down that sensation, I'm feeling bored, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling uh, uh, stressed, fatigued, whatever it might be, if you could just write down that sensation, that's the first step because then you start to gain agency over it. Then what we want to do is to not deal with that sensation with contempt But to deal with it with curiosity. So back to that example of the blamers versus the shamers. The shamers say, Oh God, I'm distracted again. There's something wrong with me. I have such a short attention span. Maybe I'm lazy. You know, they they shame themselves. And that only creates more internal triggers. Similarly, many people they they stick with what's called pure abstinence. And so pure abstinence is when we deny ourselves something. And of course, the problem with pure abstinence is that it tends to backfire. So think about when you tell yourself not to do something, it's almost like uh, taking a rubber band and pulling it, okay? So for example, if I said right now, I do not want you to think of a white bear. Don't think about it. Don't do it. Don't think about a (laughs) white bear. What are you thinking about? Yeah, the white bear. Of course, you're thinking about nothing but a white bear. So when we tell ourselves don't do something, it's like pulling on a rubber band. So you pull, 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 pull. Finally, it gets so tight, you can't pull it anymore. And you let go and it doesn't go back to where it started. No, it ricochets even farther out. This, I,
0: this literally just, sorry to interrupt, but this literally happened to me just last week. I, I was, I had had it with, uh, with checking the news obsessively all day. You know, we've got this like drama happening in politics and, and I've been addicted to it. Well, or, or engaged in it, as you would say. (laughs) And, um, and so I decided, you know, I'm, I'm just not going to allow myself to read any news before 6 PM. And you know, that lasted all of maybe seven days or so. And uh, and then I was right back to it because I, I just, it, I I found other things to replace that with and yeah. it wasn't productive stuff.
1: Yeah, interesting. Okay, so here's what we do instead of strict absence because strict absence can work with some things. Or for example, if you're a recovering heroin addict, you know, a strict absence may not be a bad thing because you can remove it from your environment. But what happens when you're trying to abstain from food, right? Let's say you're on a diet. Well, we have to eat, right? We can't completely abstain. I used to be clinically obese. I know all about this. It's very, very difficult. The same with technology. The same with the news. Frankly, you can't just escape it completely. So a much healthier tactic. And by the way, the reason that strict abstinence is, is so, so oftentimes backfires, is remember when we said earlier that the root cause of all human behavior is a desire to escape discomfort. Well, what you're doing when you use strict abstinence by telling yourself, "Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't." okay fine I'll do it that relief of the tension of telling yourself don't 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 feels good it's kind of like if you really have to pee and then you finally get to relieve yourself and it feels good like oh the relief you're training your brain that the only way to get relief is to do the thing you don't want to do right and so that's why strict abstinence backfires so what's the alternative the alternative is what's called the 10 minute rule The 10-minute rule, I didn't create this. This comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. It's a decades-old practice, and here's how it works. You can give in to any distraction as long as you do it in 10 minutes. 10 minutes of doing what psychologists call surfing the urge, because these uncomfortable emotional states, these internal triggers – they crest and subside, kind of like a wave. And so your job is to ride that wave like a surfer on a surfboard. So if it's, oh, I want to have that piece of chocolate cake, but I know it's a distraction. That's not really what I want to do. I really want to go check the news right now, but I promised myself that I would work on this project. And so that's not really what I want to do. So don't tell yourself, don't do it. Tell yourself, fine, I can give in. I can have that chocolate cake. I can check the news in just 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Of surfing the urge. So here's what I want you to do. For 10 minutes, and sometimes I'll just take out my phone, I'll say set a timer for 10 minutes, I'll put my phone down. And then my job for those 10 minutes is to contemplate that sensation, to explore it with curiosity, not with contempt, but with curiosity. What is it that I'm experiencing? Just feel that sensation and talk to yourself the way you would talk to a good friend struggling with this. Okay, so in those 10 minutes, you can either surf the urge and do what I just described or get back to the task at hand. And you will find that nine times out of 10, before those 10 minutes are up, you'll be back to doing the thing that you wanted to do. And so that's how this 10-minute rule works. That's just one. That's just the tip of the iceberg. There are many, many other techniques as well in the book.
0: I love it. So, um, And and what I love about the approach uh, in the book is that it's based on this Underlying fundamental thing that we have to deal with, um, because it's not just the technology; it's not just the way the apps have been engineered. It's it's something much deeper, and we have to understand that first before we can apply these techniques. and 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 I love that your techniques aren't just uh, you know how to change the notifications on your phone, uh, although that may be part of it. It it, it goes a lot deeper than that. Um, Near, I, I I would love uh, if we could wrap things up. Uh, with two things. Uh, first is just a silly question, which is, you got me thinking, I wonder what Plato was distracted with (laughs) back then, if it wasn't his phone. I mean, we don't even (laughs) remember what we used to be distracted with, but I wonder what it was for him.
1: All sorts of things. I mean, there, there is no shortage, right? Gossip and, and sports, you know, spectator sports and uh, politics. I mean, we, we will find something to distract ourselves no matter what. We're really good at that. Because look, you know, one of the myths, I think, in the self-help industry these days is that if you're not happy all the time, if you're not satisfied with your life, that something's wrong with you. And I think that is a very pernicious belief because think about it logically for a second. If there was ever a species of Homo sapiens who were, or I should say a group or you know, a tribe of Homo sapiens who were happy all the time, who were satisfied with their life, our relatives, our ancestors probably killed and ate them. <laughs> well, that would not be a beneficial evolutionary trait to be satisfied. Our species is designed to be perpetually perturbed. That is what evolution has bestowed upon us. And so we need to stop believing that feeling bad is bad it's not it's what drives us to achieve to strive to accomplish to improve our lot in life what we have to do is to learn how to use that disquietude to help us do things that are provide traction in our life as opposed to trying to escape that uncomfortable feeling with a distraction
0: this is uh, a perfect segue to my last question and i apologize that i only left you a few minutes to answer this because i'm sure we could do a whole episode on it but could you settle for us Once and for all, or give us something else to dig into, um, to answer the question, does social media make us depressed and lonely? Is it something about the, the media itself that actually makes us feel depressed and lonely? Or is that something that, that we would feel anyway?
1: Yeah. So I'm going to give you the answer to every comp, to every complex question that has ever been asked this one too. The answer is it depends. <laughs> it's 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 not a simple answer. It depends on so many factors. It depends on who you are, how much you're using, what you're doing when you use social media, and what you would be doing instead of using social media. So, so is, does that make sense? Because you know, like let, let's say you're someone. If I told you, um, you know, I uh, I use social media five hours a day, and then you would tell me, oh my gosh, that sounds like way too much. And I would say, yeah, but you know what? I, I used to have a drinking problem. And I found that connecting with other people who are recovering alcoholics online is what I have replaced drinking with. I need that emotional support. Well, then you say, oh, wow, that's actually not such a bad thing, is it, after all? Because being on social media is much healthier than, than drinking your problems away. And so it's, it's a complicated question. I would say, as a general rule of thumb, social media is a wonderful supplement. It's not a good replacement. Mm. We need those in-person interactions. And so part of what I talk about in, in, this, in, in Indistractable in my book is about turning your values into time. That if one of your values is to be a, an available friend, and we know that for our psychological well-being, we need to see people. We need to understand others and, and to have others understand us. It is critical for our psychological well-being. And so we have to make time for that in our day. Part of the reason that we are experiencing this loneliness epidemic, and this started back in the 1990s. Robert Putnam wrote about it in his book, Bowling Alone. In the 1990s, it did not start with social media. We have had a collapse in the, social, the, the, the regularity of social inter- institutions in this country. It used to be you would bowl with your friends. You would go, you know, join Kiwanis Club. You would attend the church group. Well, these organizations, uh, you know, many of them don't exist anymore. And it's not because of social media. It occurred decades before social media. And we need to restore these institutions so that we can have a regular place on our calendar to meet with others. And the way we do this is by doing it ourselves, right? Do you have a regular Friday night with your buddies? do you get together for Sunday brunch with your friends, right? Getting together and having friendships is incredibly important, but we can plan that time in our schedule. So that's the second step to becoming indistractable is about making time for traction, turning your values into time.
0: Nir, this has been incredibly useful. Thank you so much uh, for being on the show today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: You can find more from Nir Ayal over at nearandfar.com. Again, that's N I R and far.com. And you can find his latest book, Indistractable, on Amazon. As always, you can find links to everything that we talked about today over at fizzleshow.co. This was episode 357. I'm Corbett Barr, and until next time, thanks for listening to The Fizzle Show.